Heavenly Father, we thank thee, Lord, for this beautiful late spring morning. Just the brilliance of the sky and the green vegetation reminds us, Lord, that in thee all things become new and that thou art an awesome, magnificent creator. Help us, Lord, to look to thee in all things. Help us, Lord, to find our courage, to find our comfort, to find our joy in thee. We pray, Lord, for those that aren't able to be with us, Brother Dan, Sister Maria, Brother Richard, Brother Roger and Sister Paulette, Aunt Marie Harfin, Aunt Laney, Lord, all those that have traveled away from us for various reasons, Lord, be with them. We pray that their that travel mercies might be granted them, that they might be able to return home soon and safely. We're thankful that Sister Hilda can be with us today. And Lord, we ask that thy spirit might work in our midst today. We are few in number, but we are many, many more than two or three. And so, Lord, we will focus on what we have and not what we don't. Lord, bless us out of thy word. Teach us. Give us, Lord, the the teachings from thee that we have need of, Lord, and we will thank thee for it in advance. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Dear ones, uh, for the, the, the bulk of my text, we'll be in Exodus chapter 32, and I know we've just covered this in, in, uh, bi- in Bible class. In fact, I'm going to read some verses that may have been last week, but I don't remember which. It might have been the week before. Um, to tell you how, why I'm coming back to this, I remember sitting in a meeting once with Brother Jose Cervantes. Now, most of you know Brother Jose, but for those of you that don't, he's the elder brother from the church in Tecate. Um, Brother Jose uh, speaks English, understands English very, very well, doesn't speak it as well as he understands it, um, and is a man of few words, but when he speaks, you listen. Because he waits. He doesn't speak quickly. He waits, he ponders, and then he speaks. And, and I heard him say this phrase, and I was reminded of it in our Bible class a couple weeks ago. He said, brothers, don't be Aaron. Brothers, don't be Aaron. So with that, I'd like to read the first eight verses in Exodus 32. And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mount, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, Up, make us gods which shall go before us. For this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what is become of him. And Aaron said unto them, Break off the golden earrings, which are in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters, and bring them unto me. And all the people break off the golden earrings, which were in their ears, and brought them unto Aaron. And he received them at their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool, after he had made it a molten calf. And they said, These be the gods of Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow is the feast to the Lord. 
And they rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said unto Moses, Get thee down, for thy people which thou broughtest out of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made them a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed thereunto and said, These be the gods of Israel which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. Pause at verse 8. We studied this in Bible class, and I don't know if it was last week or the week before, but it was recent. Moses goes up on the mountain. He's spending 40 days on the mountain with the Lord. There's thunderings, there's lightnings, there's earthquakes. God is speaking to Moses. And the Israelites, the children of Israel, are wondering, where is Moses? We don't know where Moses is. So they say to Aaron, make us a calf. Make us an idol. I don't know what Aaron was thinking. So Aaron says to them, okay, bring me all the jewelry. Bring me all the gold that you have. Bring me all the metals that I can melt down. And Aaron makes them an idol. I don't understand what Aaron was thinking. But I do know what Aaron was feeling. Aaron was feeling pressure from people. Aaron bowed to peer pressure. Now there's another person, so there's there's two people that we've read about other than the multitude, and it, it talks about all the people. It wasn't all the people, but it was all the people that were around Aaron. So we have Moses, and we have the people, and we have Aaron. But there's somebody else that's mentioned in this chapter. That somebody else was Joshua. And I want to skip here because I don't want to take too much um, time to read all of these. In verse 17, well, let me me say in verse 17, I'll sum to 17, then I'm going to go back to 11. In verse 17, it says, And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said unto Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. Where was Joshua? Joshua wasn't with the people. Moses is gone for 40 days. Where's Joshua? Joshua had separated himself from the people and was as close to Moses and the Lord as he could get and was waiting for Moses to come off the mountain. So as I pondered those words that that Brother Jose said, don't be Aaron. So if we shouldn't be Aaron, who should we be? We should be Joshua. So what do we know about Joshua? Well, 
Joshua was a young man. There's another verse I want to read here. Uh, and that's um, in, in chapter 33. This tells us a lot about Joshua. In chapter 33, verse 11. And the Lord spake unto Moses face to face as a man speaketh unto his friend. And he turned again into the camp. But his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, departed not out of the tabernacle. Aaron mingled with the people. Aaron listened to the people. Aaron allowed himself to be influenced by the people. But Joshua stayed close to God. A young man. There was something in Joshua that was different than the other people. That something that was in Joshua was also in Caleb. Joshua and Caleb were the only two that left Egypt that saw the promised land. Think about that, dear ones. And I don't, I don't remember the numbers. I know I should, but I don't remember the numbers of how many, I don't know if it was hundreds of thousands or millions that left Egypt. What was it, Jeff? Two million, men Two million men besides women and children leave Egypt. And of those that were adults, because some of the children, the younger of the children, those that I think under 20 that left Egypt still made it to the promised land. But those that were adults, those that God would have identified as mature, understanding people, only two make it to Egypt, to, to the promised land, Joshua and Caleb. Joshua and Caleb saw something that the others didn't. They believed something that the others didn't. And that was that Moses' God is God. And that the children of Israel are God's people. And that they believed that God would make of them a great nation. That God would honor his commitment to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And we know that when the, when the spies went out, one from each tribe, and they come back, and, and, and Joshua and Caleb are so excited because they see what's on the other side. They see what's in the promised land. They are so excited. And they say, there's, 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 there's this land, <coughs> excuse me, flows with milk and honey. There are, they brought back clusters of grapes that they needed to hold on a stick. They were so big. And all the other spies said, oh, there's giants in those lands. There's walled cities. All they saw were the problems. But Joshua and Caleb saw the opportunity that was there. And they believed God. And what Joshua did, now we don't read a lot about Caleb other than the fact that he was faithful. We know that when, when, they, when Joshua was dividing up the lands because Moses was not, in, was not allowed to enter the promised land, that he went to Joshua and he said, hey, Moses promised me that, this and this and this. And, and we know that when he went in those 40 years, he had not aged one bit in terms of his strength and his abilities. He was as he was a young man. So that's all we really know about Caleb. But we know a lot about Joshua. 
Joshua needed to stay close to the Lord. Joshua needed to stay close to God's representative on earth, who was Moses. He was always near Moses. Even if Moses was on the mountain, even if they wondered if Moses would return again, Joshua believed that Moses would. And he stayed close. Some time ago, I heard the story, an account of a young woman who had come to faith, not in one of our churches, but she had come to faith in her early 20s, and she, she had had it made in terms of the world. And I won't go into details of what you can ask me separately. I'm happy to share more about it with you. But she had a spiritual mentor, a sister in the Lord. And she went to her mentor and she said, I, I need some direction from you. She said, could you, could you give me some direction as to how close can I be to my old life and still be a child of God, still be in Christ? And her mentor didn't rebuke her. Her mentor in a loving way said, can I ask you a question? Why would you want to see how close you can be to what you were rather than running to the master and seeing how close you can live to Christ? When I heard that, I had tears in my eyes. Not because the advice was given that way, that was wonderful, but because of how that young woman responded to it. She said, that was so true. Why would I want to be what I was when I could be more like him, more like Christ, who died for me? That young, believing woman had the same mindset Joshua did. I need to be as close to Christ as I can. That's amazing. That's just amazing. I need to share with you a struggle I've been having lately. And I, th I think, I, I know I had the conversation with Frida. I know I had the conversation with Mike. Because Mike and I had lunch a couple weeks ago. It was funny, Brother Uli. I, I, Mike and I go to lunch, and, and we, we go to Kitty Hoynes for lunch. And he says, are you sure you want to go to lunch with me, Dad? I said, absolutely, I want to go to lunch with you. Um, I did not choke on my food, thankfully. Um, but I'm having lunch with Mike, and I, and I said, I, I, I'm struggling, Mike, with, 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 a, with a question. And he goes, what, Dad? And I said, are there teachings missing in church, in our church? And he was surprised. He said, Dad, why would you say that? And I said, and, and I want to preface this, none of the accounts that I'm reflecting on have anything to do with Syracuse. So there's no, nothing in Syracuse. But I said, you know, I've been hearing more and more of believers, not just today, but historically, that didn't live a life in the Spirit. What's missing? And again, no, no one in Syracuse. And he just, he looked so puzzled. I said, Mike, there has to be something missing. 
Or, these verses aren't true. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. So is that a true question? Is that verse true? Because if we're in Christ and we're a new creature and old things are passed away and everything has become new, then we shouldn't have those historical accounts. They shouldn't exist. Mike, what's missing? And he teaches in a loving way, said, Dad, the church isn't missing anything here. Romans 12, 2 says, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So we've got one verse where Paul is saying to the church in Corinth that everything becomes new, that when we are in Christ Jesus, like that young woman that I heard about, everything became new. Her old life is no more. And if I'm not mistaken, and I could be wrong, and that's why I don't want to mention anything about her, because I I, I, I'd have to go back and get the details, but I think at one point when she was younger, she had in some measure accepted Christ. But it wasn't a true conversion. That came later. My guess is when she met this spiritual mentor. So she experienced it. So if everything becomes new, and if we are transformed, there is no excuse for failing. So what's happening? Why is it happening? And I realized that the answer is the same thing as the difference between Aaron and Joshua. Now I realize we're talking Old Testament, New Testament. Aaron and Joshua did not have the ability to have the Holy Spirit indwell them. That would not have been possible because just as King David could not have the Holy Spirit indwell him, the Holy Spirit was upon him from time to time as the Holy Spirit was upon some in the Old Testament, but the reason I can say with all confidence that there is no way the Holy Spirit could have indwelled them was the only way the Holy Spirit can indwell and transform a soul is if Christ had died, had victory over sin, and rose from the dead, allowing us to have the blood of Christ cleanse us from all unrighteousness and the Holy Spirit come into us and transform us. We do not transform ourselves. So we know the Spirit had to come for that transformation to occur, and that could have only occurred after the death and resurrection of our Savior. So I understand that, but I'm saying there were were actions taken by Aaron and Joshua that give us an indication today that even though, even when we have the right teachings on salvation. And I 
after thinking about it, I can say I am sure beyond any doubt that we have the right teachings on salvation. We don't believe in a quick raising of the hand and signing of a document. We believe in a complete, sincere conversion that results in the transformation of a soul. And yes, those verses are true. That old things are passed away and all things can become new. And that we are transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we can prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, I will also say, I'm not saying that we are, we are not the only people that believe that. By any way, shape, or form, I know that. I have met too many wonderful believers, born-again Christians, to ever make that foolish statement. But I know the teachings work. But what might be missing or what we might not we be talking about enough? And that's Romans 1, or Romans 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, so that we will not be conformed to this world, but we will be transformed by the renewing of our minds that we might prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So I kind of went full circle. I went from really being concerned that I had missed something, that our brethren for the last two and a half centuries may have missed something, not two and a half centuries, almost two centuries. We hadn't. But I'm not sure that I am frequently enough preaching the whole counsel of God, which is that I that, that wonderful and, and and there's ways to do it. I don't believe an effective way of preaching that sanctification piece is by making harsh statements. I do believe it's effective to use the style that that beautiful Christian mentor sister did when she said something like, oh honey, why would you want to live like you used to live? Why would you rather not run close to Christ and live as close as you can to him? What's the benefit? What were the benefits of the old life? What was the outcome of living in that old life? What was the outcome of, what were the results of your heart and your mind in that old life? The same ones that happened to the Israelites. there's, There's a verse in there where it talks about where Aaron says, for Aaron had made them naked. What, if you really look at what that means, and, and I want to make sure I quote it right, uh, for Aaron had, le- that's verse, um, 
In verse 32, chapter 32, verse 25, it says, And when Moses saw that the people were naked, for Aaron had made them naked unto their shame among their enemies, what it really means is Aaron had let them get out of control. And that became a shame in front of their enemies. So we know, dear ones, that our life outside of Christ was out of control. We, even if we, if we sit down with those that, that still are, 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 are shackled by their old ways, oh yes, there are moments when things are wonderful. There are moments when they're happy and when they're laughing. But after the happiness and the laughter, when the lights come on, when the reality sets in, they realize their lost state. They realize that something is missing. And the reason we know that they realize something is missing is because they keep searching. They keep trying to find something else that will give them the excitement, that will give them the stimulation that they're missing, that they're longing for. Because what they really are looking for is what abundant living is, which is life in Christ. We've had that. What they're looking for, my brother and my sister, is that awareness, that feeling. Remember the feeling we had when we first realized we had peace with God? That's, that, that experience, that feeling, that emotion, that awareness that we couldn't put into words, and we tried, we tried to articulate to people what that feeling was, and we can't, but we, it, it's like unless you've felt it, you can't explain it. That's the contrast. We need to, yes, rebuke the works of darkness, Yes, we need to speak the truth, but the scripture says, speak the truth in love. We should be calling out sin for what sin is. But with compassion and with love. And then in closing, I was reminded of some verses in James. In James the interesting thing about the, the epistle to James, it's written to the 12 tribes that are scattered. So it's written to believers. And he says, from, this is chapter four, from whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lusts that war in your members? So he's saying, listen, these struggles you're having you know where they're coming from. That's the first part. We know it. Mike and I had this conversation when we were talking about lunch, and he said, you know, we know the areas in our life that Satan uses to influence us. We all, not only do we know where we are most likely to be tempted, but Satan does because we served him for years. He knows us inside out and backwards. But do you know who else knows where we're most likely to be tempted? God. And he said, I will never ever let you be tempted above you're able to bear, and with every temptation I will make a way of escape. So what James was saying here was he said, listen, we know where it's coming from, don't fall prey to it. There's no excuse for falling into it. 
And then in verse 5, he says, Do ye think that the scripture saith in vain, the, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? That spirit with a low S, that humanity that's in us, that flesh and blood that did not convert, that we battle with until our dying day? Don't we know it? The, spirit, the scripture says it. But then verse 6, But he giveth more grace... Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. And then I love verse 7, because verse 7 is exactly what is the answer to the dilemma that Joshua and Aaron had, that Joshua knew and Aaron didn't. It was the answer to all the believers throughout history who did not live in the Spirit or walk in the Spirit some falling to their own destruction? Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. And then listen, dear ones, to these next few verses. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. It doesn't say, resist the devil... And we're going to pray that hopefully, possibly, the devil's going to go away. No, it doesn't say that. It says resist him and he will flee. Why will he flee? Because when we resist him, we are honoring God. We are listening to the Spirit. We're relying on the Spirit. And Satan has no sway with the Spirit of the living God. When the Spirit says depart, the Satan has to go. Draw, then verse 8, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. So there's two things that James is saying. We got to resist and we have to draw nigh. Joshua understood both of those things, not in the same measure that we can today. I, I, you know, some, sometimes the scriptures actually tell us that those patriarchs of old looked for the time that we live in desiring to see it. I wonder what Joshua would have been like as a New Testament believer as faithful and on fire for Jehovah as he was, imagine that tenacity, that desire, coupled with the Spirit. That would, that would be amazing to see. But you know what? God didn't bless him with that. He blessed us with that. So think about that. Draw nigh unto God. He will draw nigh unto you. Aaron drew nigh unto the people. Joshua drew nigh unto God. And God drew nigh unto Joshua. And then he, James concludes verse 8 with, Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. He's, say, he's paying, saying, listen, just straighten up. We have the privilege of living in the victorious age of Christianity. We, Layla's, one of Layla's favorite songs, Victory in Jesus. 
my Savior forever. I, I don't know why the Lord blessed me with that, but last week there were several mornings when the very first thought that hit my head before I got out of bed was victory in Jesus. Maybe the Lord was saying, stop being melancholy. Stop focusing on the negatives. Remember, there's victory in Jesus. The teachings are sound. Teach the whole truth and encourage all to draw close to Christ. May the Lord add his blessing to these words.